this morning we're going to be wrapping up chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is this amazing book of the Bible. It's this letter from Paul to this church in the Mediterranean, uh, helping them realize where they've kind of missed the mark from God's plan for his church. Um, and so we're going to learn from Paul as he teaches them and try to apply it to our lives uh, this morning. Uh, but before I start, I want to kind of paint a picture to help us bridge the gap from today uh, to back then. And, it's, and it kind of centers around, in my mind, this idea of the Mona Lisa painting. I don't know if anyone has had a chance to go to France to the Louvre and see the Mona Lisa. I, I personally haven't. Um, but if you do any kind of quick research, in the history of the painting of the Mona Lisa, it's obviously revered as probably the one, of, one of the greatest masterpieces of art in human history that anyone was ever created. Um, it is created by Leonardo da Vinci, if you didn't know that. And um, what I want us to think about as we even just imagine just briefly what that portrait looks like is how we engage with art emotionally, intelligently, as we consider things about it. Because if you do any kind of, like I said, any kind of quick research or if you've taken like a music appreciation or an art appreciation class, you'll know that art in general tends to be dissected to be, to be studied for the reasons for why it is so great. So with the, the Mona Lisa, you could look at the symmetry, you could look at the shadowing, how the shading around, around the corners of her mar- mouth makes her smile ambiguous or her, her eyes seemingly to be present always to you as, you as you look at it, that blending. The landscape in the background is famous for being an invention that Leonardo da Vinci <clears throat> probably invented. Brush strokes, canvas, material, paint, and so on. Um, all these things are really interesting when you consider art, and this is just even fine art. But what I'd like to argue is in our understanding of something that's almost a beatific idea of a portrait of the Mona Lisa, is we tend to get distracted sometimes by all the extra things, by all the details. We sometimes, I think, neglect to realize that when Leonardo da Vinci was painting that portrait, it was not a portrait for a portrait's sake. It was to reveal a person this person seemingly who's named Mona Lisa, right? So this is a real person who he, who he studied and, and painted. So the point of a portrait in its ideal sense, although you do it in ways that are beautiful to help amplify the qualities or the story that you're trying to tell through that art, the point still is to reveal the person. Does that make sense? And it doesn't mean you can't appreciate art along the way. But I think that, is, that makes sense to me as I think about what's happening in Corinth in this church of God. So God's people... We're saved by uh, the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul went to this town called Corinth and proclaimed the good news that Jesus Christ came as the Messiah, the promised one who would come and live a perfect life and die as a substitute and offer his forgiveness and salvation by faith so that we could be saved. And they believed him. The church was planted in Corinth and, and suddenly these believers started to figure out what it looks like. Now that I'm saved, what does my life look like? How do I come under the authority of a new king and, and make my life model the goodness and the grace of, of Jesus. But as it went on and after Paul departed Corinth and started planting other churches, things went a little bit sideways, like we know because we've been studying this book. And the Corinthian church began to do what I kind of tried to paint a picture of earlier, if I can use that pun. <laughs> Um, that we missed the point, we missed the force from the trees sometimes. The main thing isn't the main thing anymore. For the Corinthians, they started um, focusing on the fruit of the gospel, you could say, more than 
the gospel itself and Jesus, the person himself in particular, so that they were excited about the gifts that they received by the Spirit. They were excited about the freedoms that they were able to, to walk in because of what Jesus had accomplished for them and, and worse things that end up even more sideways. But the point of all this is for us, as we study the book of Corinthians and as we see how Paul corrects them, let our hearts be accessible to this, to this word. Lord, where are we pursuing after fruit instead of you? Where, where are we missing the centerpiece of the portrait, you, Jesus, as opposed to all the trappings and the beautiful things that tend to support and help make that thing beautiful? Because, Lord, we don't want to do that. So as we, as we pursue that, um, let me pray for us. And then we're going to read um, chapter 10, verses 23, through the very beginning of chapter 11. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, God, thank you for your word. Lord, we trust that your Bible is able to say, Lord, your message Jesus, your perfect word is useful for us to correct us and to shepherd us and to teach us and train us so that we might be made righteous, Lord, but you are the word of God too, so we just bless you, God. Please, Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to see where we might be off the beaten path, missing the mark, and and Lord, forgive us, bring us back, and help us to understand what you want us to do. We want to follow you, Jesus. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to read along with us. So we're gonna start in verse 23 of chapter 10. It says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to go to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? For if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Amen. God's word is good. Let me tell you guys a story. So um, about two weeks ago, I had lunch with a friend. So I wanted to hang out with this guy because I love this dude, trust this dude, and wanted to build a relationship with him. And uh, I asked my friend, well, where does this guy like to go? What kind of food does he want to eat? And my friend said, I think he likes Chipotle. Okay, so, so we're like, sweet, Chipotle, whatever. Asked my friend, yes, we go to Chipotle. Uh, and this thing happened while we were there. I don't know if you've done this yet. This is like the harbinger of the end of the world to me. We uh, roll up to this restaurant, and there's like a you know, sign on the door that says, no longer any cashiers, 100% app. You're welcome to come inside and sit down. It's like the cell phone waiting lot at the airport, basically. So we went in, and I was like, okay, whatever, cool. <laughs> so we ordered. We pulled up the app. Didn't have it. Downloaded it. Ordered it. And then hung out and started our conversation with, you know, we're just chatting and, and doing life together. Um, and I, I'm sure you guys know, as you continue to hang out with people, you tend to lose track of time. So time passed. And then after a while, I was like, oh, there's like a lot of people in here and we haven't gotten our food yet. And I went back and looked at the time, and it was like half an hour at that point. So like, okay, whatever. And we're still hanging out. And finally, the food comes after like about 40 minutes or whatever. I, I'm not kidding. It, I'm not trying to throw Chipotle under the bus. Um, 
So whatever, it was fun. We, I, actually, in, in retrospect, it didn't even matter to me. We're, we're really enjoying each other and stuff. But as we're getting ready to leave, I get this, because I downloaded the app, I get the notification, because I didn't say no, because I'm, I'm dumb, I didn't do that right. <laughs> and it's like, hey, do you want to fill out a survey? I'm like, all right, you asked me to. So it's like, food was good, straight up 30 minutes more than it should have been at least. Da, da, da. And so that was fine. Not, not trying to, like I said, throw, throw them under the bus, but it happened. And so the next day I get an email from like the district rep from Chipotle, their like quality assurance manager, and they're like, hey, we're sorry. It shouldn't have been like that. Here's a free burrito. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. It was fun. I was not intending to get burrito, but I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so why do I tell you that silly story? Uh, in my mind, it's like this. A franchise, Chipotle is a restaurant franchise, you know, like they have many restaurants and they all our franchise, so their distinctives, their values, what they want to do should be the same roughly in every restaurant that you go to, All right? We, we understand that. So what makes a franchise successful is that it's governed by agreed upon like franchise values. So when I messaged, when I replied on that survey, hey, it took too long, they were like, you're right, that is too long according to said values. And so they tried to make recompense and then you know, continue to have my, have my business going forward. Um, so if I can bridge that gap and try to apply it to this story of, of the church in Corinth, if the church is like a franchise, I know that's weird, but just follow me, of the gospel of Jesus, then whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, we all do it for the glory of God are some of these like governing things. Like what, what does Paul want us to do? Because he, if, if you can draw a straight line, I'm not trying to like take this analogy too far. If Paul is like a district manager for the quality of what is happening at the church in Corinth, he's like, guys, this is not the business that we're in. We're not selling what you are selling. You, you need to make a course correction, right? Because he established the church. He preached the gospel. He's acquainted. He's the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as he finds out from Chloe's people and others what's happening in the church, he is compelled as this apostle who cares for the church to confront them, to help them change, to, to illuminate to them where they are not in line with the gospel and compel them to change, Right? So the Corinthian church had drifted into this unhealthy obsession with fruit, like I mentioned, and particularly freedoms. And these are true freedoms that the gospel provides. Um, but when it becomes a place of worship instead of um, love and gratitude, it, it, it manifests into an idol. And that's what Pastor Alex, Pastor Alex walked us through last week, which is so helpful. Um, but, but maybe you're like me, and when, when you read a story like this, and you're like, okay, food sacrificed to idols, how do we how do we interface? It's challenging, right? I don't I don't have like um, friends inviting me to kill animals and bow down to statues, and you know I don't have to abstain from eating at pagan worship meals. Like if it was doing one to one, right? It's a it's a decently large gap, at least for me culturally. But Paul is going to help us today because he's going to use this specific idea, this specific story, and then just like explode it out into this massive expanse of whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So God's freedom, Jesus's freedom in the gospel given to us is at risk of becoming an idol. Is I think a big part of what Paul is looking for us to understand when you're unable to let it go. So as we think about all things, when it comes to this joy of freedom that we have in Jesus in all things, we can, we can look to identify places of struggle and places of temptation to worship fruit instead of the fruit giver when we're unable to like let go of stuff. So like the, the letter of, uh, to the Corinthians is even a response to a letter that they wrote to Paul saying like, Paul, why are you upset? All things are permissible to us. All things are 
lawful for us. And so Paul helps him understand, like, you have amplified this to the place that is very unhealthy. And we can resonate with that. Why is it so difficult for us to let go of things that we know we're entitled to? Like Eric, a couple weeks ago, walked us through, we do possess rights. Like we have certain inalienable rights in the United States of America as Christians, as spouses, as employees, as memberships to Disney Plus or whatever. We have rights, right? But when they're not met, when like the little loading circle keeps going, why are, are you so enraged that like the thing doesn't give you what you paid for or when you want it right then? Or for me, maybe in Chipotle, it should be here already, you know? But um, to drive down even more, more seriously, like when was the last time you did it? When was the last time you practiced relinquishing your rights to serve, to bless, to build up the church in love like Paul would ask us to? When's the last time that you relinquished your right to be right? like in an argument with a friend or a family member? When have you declined caring for yourself in like a relaxing or rest sort of way in, instead of investing in a relationship that you know the Lord is asking you to pursue? When's the last time maybe in, in relationship with your children that you as a parent uh, chose to not execute your true and given authority in a way to discipline bad behavior instead of maybe extending grace? There's always, we're, we're in charge of how we discipline our children even. So are there places where we're, we're more offended by their misbehavior than we are desiring for them to be uh, disciples of Jesus? When's the last time that you've been compelled to set aside margin in your schedule in order to con- accommodate someone else's preferences? When's the last time you wholeheartedly, truly embraced another person's idea at your workplace that you completely don't agree with? super imbalanced and fair and maybe a decent idea, but you don't agree with it and you're still like, no, I'm not gonna do that. That's, that's dumb, we're gonna go this way. So Paul is writing this letter to help us. He wants us to be shepherded away from self-indulgent, selfish, rightness all the time in a way that blesses people. He wants us to set aside these freedoms in a way that Jesus did by letting his love govern their freedoms. So the answer to the problem is this, in the places that we're selfishly and, and clinging to and gripping to our rights, we need to image, Im, Im, imitate Jesus by letting his love govern our freedoms. We need to imitate Jesus by letting his love be the governing force, the driving factor, the steering wheel for where and when and how we execute our freedoms. So let me tell you another story, this is amazing. Oh, this is the greatest story ever. So Power Wheels is a company that makes toy cars for kids. You can modify Power Wheels. I know many of you probably have done this. This is like a dad thing to do. You just take a little bit of wire, make sure it's the right AWG, and then you link batteries in series instead of parallel, and you can like double the amps or the volts of a engine, and you'll burn it out sooner or later. But in the meantime, the Power Wheel that's like, you know, cruising along can like rip around your house and tear up the, tear up the grass. It's amazing. So I did that for, for our boys at our house. I have some cool videos I could show you of them. Like, it's really, really fun and super dangerous. So like unsupervised, it's not a good idea. And you might think, okay, that's probably why Power Wheels didn't like put 18 to 24 volts in the Power Wheels because those kids can like pop wheelies and stuff. You have, to, you have to literally get the wheels that are made out of rubber instead of plastic because they just will burn out. There's so much torque. It's really fun. So cars are really interesting 
in this way, they really only have two components. I'm gonna argue that car, cars only only have two components and I promise this is gonna lead us to understanding how we can follow Jesus and let his love govern uh, our freedom, so follow me. The first part is this, the powertrain. So like the supporting systems and the, power, and the engine and the transaxle or transmission that you, whatever you have in your car that create power and then distribute power to wheels so that you can move this thing called a car. It's really pretty crude at a certain level. It's just wheels that turn, friction pushes the thing, power is translated, and you move. That's the first part. And sure, I know there's a lot to go into that one part, but that's the first part. The second part is what I'm gonna call directional control. So the steering wheel, gas, the brake, even gear shifters or whatever. A car without control is amazing. Like the power wheels experience for me, that car could go. It was really awesome. But it's also dangerous or it won't actually get you where you want to go if you can't control it. At the same time, just control and no power, no freedom to drive will not also get you to where you want to go. Intrinsically, a car's design is to get you from point A to point B. If it doesn't go, you don't go, so that didn't work. And if it goes, but you can't control it to where you want to go, then that doesn't work either. Does that make sense? So again, before I push this image too far, suffice it to say that there is a beautiful marriage, I think, in the gospel that on one side gives us the grace of the identity of Jesus that liberates us. It's the freedom of Jesus' power over sin, over the law that we couldn't fulfill. It's liberty. This is freedom to drive, if you will. And then the other side of that same gospel, that same one gospel, is the love of Jesus, which directs and compels us and controls us to accomplish his mission, to live lives that bring his love to bear on the world. Uh, let me read this in 2 Corinthians. So it's like, <laughs> this is just a sneak peek. Uh, so maybe they didn't get it, and, and Paul felt like he needed to write it again. <laughs> so this is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is amazing. So we want to imitate Jesus by letting his love like the steering wheel of a car, like the brakes and the gas, control, govern our freedoms that he's gifted us in. And so I wanna do this, it's like, um, anytime you kinda break something into parts when it's not parts, you're at risk of kinda mutating the thing out of truth. So I don't wanna do that. We're gonna look at both of those two things separately and then hope to bring them back together to demonstrate that they're not separate but they are just facets of the one same thing. Um, so the first is this, in Christ, you are free indeed. So what I mean, the truth of the gospel is a liberating force. Jesus himself said that we're truly free by his truth. It's the grace of God found in Jesus. And this has to be true for any of these situations in 1 Corinthians even to make sense and to be true. If they weren't true and righteousness had to be achieved by doing good things, then they would be way far afield at this point. They need to be doing the law if you have to achieve righteousness by the law. They'd in fact be disobeying uh, the Torah food laws. So what does Paul say though instead? Let's start reading back in the scripture. So at verse 25 through 27, it says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So how was Paul even able to say this? Paul is a Jew. 
the Jewish people received the revelation of God in the old covenant that said you're going to eat specific foods to demonstrate that you're different, that you're set apart and you're holy because through you all the nations will be blessed and that holiness needs to be maintained as we point to the one who is perfectly holy who will come, right? So Paul, interestingly, points very directly and, and precisely at this point regarding this controversy of whether that these people in the Corinthian church can eat this food or not in a way that logically puts it forward that, lo- that food is simply not good or evil, but it's something that is a part of the creation of which God owns. So let me read that verse again. The, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And this is a citation from Psalm 24. You, you can read it um, on your own time. It says basically the same thing. But it's really interesting because um, Psalm 24 is in the Old, Old Testament. So David, other psalmists in Israel before Jesus kept the, the covenant. They kept Torah law. They kept kosher food laws because that's, that's what they were commanded to do. So how can Paul cite a psalm as a, uh, as a, as a rhetoric that would convince us to trust his, his, his desire for us to be, to be free in eating whatever is sold in the meat market, which potentially is even offered to false gods or, or idols, right? So the idea is this. Paul wants us to see ourselves through the cross. That is because Christ is the fulfillment of the law of the old covenant. All that binds me at this point, according to Paul, is that we eat in a way that's worshipful grateful to God. So in their eating, actually, they're proclaiming Christ if they do it in a, in a way of thanksgiving. Because, because what is food except for a provision from God? And who is Jesus except for the true food, the bread of heaven who came down to provide life for us, right? So it's, it's interesting. I mean, he, that's, what he, that's the way he goes about doing it. Um, but in, in, a, in, a time, in a very specific way, I would say Paul is concluding that there are no food requirements placed on Christians, even those that might have been offered to idols in worship, except for that we are just grateful. So he says in uh, verse 29 and 30, uh, I, don't, I don't mean your conscience as far as a reservation to not eat, but the other person's, his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Thanksgiving recognizes that God is the provider of all things. And in faith in Jesus, in faith in what he did, all that we need to do is just say thank you and all foods are clean. And this is, this is amazing. So I, I had a conversation with a guy not that long ago. I, I was, um, he was actually Uber driver. who was taking me from a hotel to an airport. And he asked me what I was doing there and I was explaining how I was a pastor, you know. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. I read the Bible. And, and he was such a sweet guy. His name was Shane. Um, and, and he basically explained to me that he was a really good person. He's like, man, I know a lot of bad people, and I sure make some mistakes. But I do most of the rules that God has written most of the time and much more than most people. And it was, he was such a sweet guy. His heart was open, and I, was, and I basically just explained the gospel to him. I was like, well, Jesus says be perfect. It's so like, how's it going, you know? What, what do you do with this issue of sin? And he was super, I mean, he wasn't offended by it. We, he was super open-hearted about it. But it was amazing to just to, to preach Jesus to him. So if you've never heard this good news about God before, it's we have failed to complete God's perfect law. 
The, the Bible says that the law is written on our hearts, so we even do it on accident. By, we keep it without knowing it's a law, even before we know the law, because it's apparent to us. And yet, even though we know it, we can't do it. And none of us in this room have perfectly lived lives of blessing and goodness and faithfulness to God's good law. And so what do we do? Nothing except for believe in the one that God sent and provided. And so that's Jesus Christ. If you, if you don't know the story of the Bible and Jesus and his salvation that he offers to you, God has provided perfection for you. He sent his son, he became a human, he lived that perfect life. He did all the things that God required for people to do in a way that was without sin, so he's perfect. And then he didn't stop there, but he sacrificed himself. He died in our place. And in his death, he offers that perfect life as a substitute for us so that we might have that perfect righteousness if we would believe in him. And that, that is extended to you even just right now. If, you've heard, if you heard me say that and you're like, what is that? How do, I, how do I get that perfection? All you need to do is believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that it's true and he'll save you. He'll give you that perfect righteousness. He'll take your sin and cover it with his blood that he died for you to give. And you'll become a Christian and he'll give you this freedom. And so that's where we're at. Paul wants us to be precise when it comes to food, when it comes to things that were formerly required to do or not do by God's perfect law. They're not placed on us as a righteous requirement anymore. And we are absolutely free in Christ to do things like eat food that doesn't compromise our worship of God or not serve our, our friends. In Christ, you are free indeed, church. And we need to maintain this. And so these things aren't in opposition, our freedom and our, and our desire to let love govern how we use our freedoms, but you need to have both, like the steering wheel and like the gas pedal we, and the engine in the car. We need all these things if we're gonna actually do what God has for us. So we need to believe that Jesus Christ is perfect and that he died to give us his perfection and that it is ours in Christ so that we don't have to work to achieve anything. All his righteousness has been given to us. Is that good news this morning for you, man? Just rest in the good news of Jesus today. So that's the first idea. In Christ, we're free indeed. So then what do we do with this call to govern our freedom for the mission? Paul tells us to resign our freedoms when necessary. So places will come where you'll have the opportunity, and if you're faithful to the love of God, you'll need to resign your freedoms in places that are necessary. Let me read verses 28 and 29. It says, but if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So what does that mean? Paul is like trying to draw a laser beam focus to this topic because he's spent quite a bit of time now, starting in chapter six and mostly through chapters eight, nine, and 10, explaining to the Corinthian people, like guys, you're totally missing, you're totally missing it. The main thing is not Jesus anymore. It's not loving people. It's like, you wanna know if you can eat food or not, or you wanna know if you can do this or that. Can we put that over here for a second and just talk about the main thing? He's trying to um, bring this topic to bear by, it's interesting, in, in this like conditional if hypothetical. So he's like, hey, just hear me out. If somebody says this is offered to an idol, then yeah, don't, don't eat that because their conscience would be harmed because they think that it is. Even though we know that an idol is nothing and we're free to eat that, he just said that, we're absolutely free to eat anything that's sold in the marketplace regardless of whether or not it was sacrificed to an idol. Notwithstanding, we don't wanna go to temples and worship false gods, you can't do that. But it, all things are free to you in that sense unless, and here's where it comes to bear, 
if someone hypothetically would say, don't eat that because that's been offered to a demon, right? In other words, Christ's love would ask you to govern your bodies in love, to resist using a freedom when it's appropriate, when it's necessary. This might be something you're commonly used to having, but you could set it aside in order to protect somebody's soul. And when you think, when we put it in that lens, like Paul says it so strongly, he says, that they may be saved. Like this is not a preference thing, this is like life and death. This is like eternal life and eternal death. If we choose to set aside things that are truly ours in Christ, things that we've been set free to obtain and enjoy and maintain, but then not actually live in those for the blessing of other people, this is an eternal conversation. Isn't the upbuilding of another person infinitely more important than using that freedom? And this isn't diminishing that freedom, but actually we're free from needing to use that freedom. Like how free is freedom if you're free from needing to do that freedom, right? And why is this? Because we want to imitate Jesus. Guys, he did that for us. Who is Jesus Christ except for the Lord of the universe? The God who created all things by speaking. He upholds them with the world of his power, with, by the word of his power. He maintains us. We breathe every breath in this room right now only because he chooses to give them to us. This glorious God who makes the earth spin on just the right axis so that there's seasons and plants can grow and there's food for people to eat and animals to eat. There's oxygen in the air. There's so many, so many glorious things about who God is and his worthiness just in creation that when we consider his model and his gift to us in sacrificing his rights, his freedoms for our sake, how can we not also respond by doing the same for the people around us? Why wouldn't you want to serve your neighbor by changing your behavior for their benefit? Food will pass away, but a Christian will never pass away. If you ever just question your salvation, it's guarded for us in eternal places. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And so we get to participate in this church. This is a call for us to be missional, to be missionaries who have the mindset like Paul and how he desires for the Corinthian church to be that thinks, Every piece of food I eat, every choice that I make can have the implication of eternal life or, or eternal damnation for people near me if I participate with the Holy Spirit. So that's the call, man. Food will pass away, but a Christian will never pass away, so pick the more important value. Let's, res- let's church, let's resign our freedoms when necessary. Okay, so those are the two ideas. We're free in Christ. He's given us his, his gospel identity we also have this call to let love govern and resign our freedoms when necessary. So how do, we, how do we bring them together? The way is through Christ. So we follow Jesus by living like he did. We glorify God as we reflect the gospel of who Jesus is. Glor- glorification is like a, a big word that we see in the Bible and it kind of becomes numb or, or nebulous because it doesn't really have a lot of handles for us. Glory could just be equi- uh, equated to light or weight or value, or, or when you look at something, you assess it and say, that is something. How much is that something? When you glorify God and you use that idea of light, and we as Christians and as humans are image bearers of God, it's as simple as God is this. He's in substance glorious, amazing, loving, powerful. And as we tell the story of who he is, we're imaging, we're reflecting out his glory to the world. 
We're showing what God is like by becoming like him. And that's why Paul asks us, he says, man, guys, imitate Jesus. Let love govern your freedom and you will give glory to God. You will reveal his nature to people for the upbuilding of the church and for the salvation of the lost. So let me read verses. This, the way that Paul, by the way, just a total aside, the way that Paul wrote this is kind of like, um, like an X that zooms into the center point. So on bookends of the top and the bottom are this call to imitate Jesus. And so I'm gonna read the very beginning of the passage and the end. Uh, so starting in verse 23 and 24 together, all th- again, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then let's jump down to verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I, I just found this picture so compelling. Like Paul is consumed with the good of his neighbor at the detriment of himself. He uses that phrase uh, in verse 24. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, which just sounds like hyperbole or like impossible in our, our world that is just perpetrating self-care and, and self-assigned boundaries. You know, we, we do self-actualization. That's what we do in America and probably in the world, in the West at least. And so for Paul to say, no, actually carry your cross and die to your own desires flies in the face of everything that we're sold and told every day of the week in, in the lives that we live. And so that's why we need this call to return to the gospel. It seems extreme, but actually this is everything that Jesus did for us. We maintain, we maintain the truth of grace that we have in Jesus who gives us liberty from sin and the law. And we use that grace to empower us to follow Jesus, to live lives of love through our behavior and either use the freedoms that we have or choose to refrain from them. Uh, I, I just wanna highlight really quickly the story of the Good Samaritan, and we'll wrap up. So Ben, you guys can come up at this time. Um, as we consider these two seemingly diametrically opposed points and consider how that we're supposed to bring them together in one, let's look to the Lord. Let's see what Jesus did. So in the Gospels, Jesus told this parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'm sure you've heard it before. We all, I think we all have. In that parable, we're supposed to identify with the, the person that's beaten on the road. We're supposed to see ourselves as the destitute one, the one that has been beaten and left for dead and has no way of rescue on their own. And in the story, the type figure of Jesus is this good Samaritan. It reveals the gospel that Jesus is willing to be inconvenienced significantly, financially, time, culturally. He puts himself out to our advantage to serve our need, and he provides for us everything that we need. The love of God that we experience in that story, that God was willing to do all these things for us, and and as we worship him, as we consider what he's done for us, it should compel us to respond. It should compel us to let that same love guard our hearts to do the works of God, which include resigning the freedoms when they come so that we can love people. Um, so I, I just want to try to, to put it to a point for us just by asking the question, what needs to change in your life? What freedoms in your life need to be put down? Because 
it's sitting in a position of an idol or that you have opportunity to use it. Like maybe God's putting something in front of you where you know, oh yeah, that's the thing I need to say no to so that I can have opportunity to build somebody up. So I asked that question earlier, when was the last time you relinquished your right to be right in an argument? Think of the gospel. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Turn away from that call to be right and instead receive the freedom from Jesus and and let that love govern you. When's the last time that you sacrificed to invest in others? Let's instead fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. Let's turn away from protecting ourselves and instead believe in the eternal life, the resurrection power of Jesus, and let that love govern us. Maybe you just ask yourself, am I free at all? Maybe you, maybe you hear these words and you're like, I, I am enslaved to my own desires. And maybe it's because you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. I believe there's people in this room that are not Christians that need to hear the good news of Jesus, that the Lord today would speak to you and say, you can't do it. You're on the side of the road. You're beaten. You have no way to provide for yourself. But I've, I've come and I've lived perfectly and I've died so that you don't have to. All that I am and all that I have is yours. Just believe that I'm giving it to you. Just turn away from your own arrogance, your own thinking that you can achieve this righteousness on your own, this goodness on your own, this life on your own. Just give up, surrender to him, worship Jesus, put your faith in him and he'll rescue you and he'll free you from that need. He'll set you on your feet and he'll empower you to learn what it looks like to follow him and learn to set aside our freedoms and let love govern us. So church, let's just stand and let me pray for us as we continue to worship. As we, as we go, I just wanna try to inspire us too. Like, what if our church looked like this? What if none of us had these scruples? What if none of us sought to always maintain our freedoms, but instead look for opportunity to lay them down, to build each other up? I can tell you we would have no conflict. I would tell you that if we build each other up and let Christ's love govern us, it would expel out our desires for sin and it would comfort us. And what would happen to the city around us if we did this? In John 17, Jesus said, if you're united in my love, the world will know that Jesus was sent from the Father to be that savior. They'll respond to the gospel when they see us having love for one another. And he's offering us a way right now. He's like, as I'm leading you to lay down your freedoms, and let love govern what we do, people are gonna get saved. That's what Paul just said. So let's put faith in that. Let's respond and worship and thank God for, for providing Jesus for us. And let's seek him and what it looks like to respond and laying down our lives for our friends. Let me pray for us so we can worship. Father God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word that's perfect and true. God, we just ask that you would come, Spirit, and change us. Compel us to respond to who you are and what you've done for us. God, we believe in your gospel. We believe in your sacrifice and we thank you, Jesus. You suffered for us. You were humiliated for us. And you endured it all for us so that we might know freedom in you and what it looks like to call it the joy 
of pursuing people through the cross, that we would pick up our crosses and we would lay down our lives, that you might be made much of, that we might be made whole, and that people might be saved by your, by your love, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us. Please help us. We worship you, Lord. Amen.